Hey everyone, welcome to Techonomics this week. I'm Jake, an analyst, writer, and engineer currently working in fintech. And I'm Arun, an investor, educator, and product leader currently working in the autonomous space. And today we're talking with Yvonne Kirigan, founder of Tango.vc, which is a venture capital firm investing in seed stage ML automation and robotics companies. All right. I've hit record. Yvonne, welcome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So we've actually crossed paths in our careers. So I kind of know part of the story. But one thing we really like people opening up with is just how did you get to where you are? How did you get to starting your own fund? And what were the motivations behind that like along the way? Yes, let's go way back and start with sci-fi in high school. So when it comes to Deckard from Blade Runner or Data Lore from Star Trek or Skynet from Terminator or the million other AIs, Agent Smith. And you have all these amazing depictions of the future in sci-fi. And so I was always interested in technology. And when I started in computer science, that seemed like a clear way of getting into that and then got a master's in robotics from Carnegie Mellon. And master's, not PhD, because I was always biased towards applied towards shipping product and not towards just pure research because I have a, the business side of that. And so worked at companies like iRobot, helping their bond disposal robots get smarter. And but what I concluded was that there weren't going to be new products in robotics for a while. So around 2007, I thought I should go do something else and had been reading a bunch of essays by Paul Graham and got it to the YC community a little bit and did a company that was in the winter 08 batch of YC called TipJoy, totally outside of robotics and social micropayments, then worked at Facebook on payments. And then that kind of got me hooked on growth. So the short story there is that when you have a company that doesn't work out, and then you see a company like Facebook, how it works internally, you think oh, there's actually a science behind this. There's a lot going on here. And th what that implies is that there's there's some kind of repeatability to the business. And so I went to Dropbox really early to start working on product and growth. And that meant building experimentation systems and a lot of tests on engagement and retention and referrals, especially. And then did a second startup, merge the machine learning and social aspect of the career so far. And Lyft acquired that. And that's how I ended up at Lyft. The, the product we had was around social graph analysis. So we could do things like see who is currently using your product and who tends to be invited and then recommend people that are like that. So a recommendation engine over a social graph. So if you've used the referral program within a Lyft app, you've, you've touched this code that Lyft acquired. Even within Lyft, you and I worked together on the growth team. Then uh, yeah. I decided I was done with growth after I mean, we built a system called Symphony that could optimize spend across a quarter billion dollar marketing channel, uh, like a bunch of different channels, a bunch of different regions, and have levers for everything, including projecting out LTV, won't get into all the details, but then decided that after you do that, we basically automate the job that I should go do something more interesting and went back to robotics and lift level five. And that was an interesting comparison to see what had changed because at iRobot, I had worked on the third grand challenge, the urban challenge. And so seeing robotics and self-driving in 2007, and then you know, 2018, 2019, that was a, is a very interesting comparison. I left Lyft in late 2019 and decided to go investing full-time. And there's a question of how to approach that. Why I ended up starting my own fund is because I want to do a bunch of things differently. And we could talk in more detail about that. But people take different paths. They have a syndicate. They just do angel investing on the side. They have a fund on the side. They join another fund. There's all sorts of ways of getting into VC. Uh, and so when you, in this path, uh, the one thing that Jake and I noticed 
is that it seems like you applied to YC twice and got in twice and went through it twice. So actually, I've applied more than twice. And so I have not gotten okay. in every time I've applied. And so that sure. is uh, it's interesting to have gotten in and then to not get it. What <laughs> I thought you guys liked me. Yeah. And then so actually within the same company, within YesGraph, we started out doing hmm. recruiting. And then so we would do social graph analysis to be able to help you make uh, referrals. So we would combine your LinkedIn, email, and Facebook and make it super easy to push button, recommend people that we the app would rank them to say here are the front end software engineers and you tell us who's mm. good because these folks they're your first degree connections this product really needs to exist i'm probably going to build it again within tango just as a product for our, our portfolio that initial product though for referrals for recruiting i don't think yc thought that i had any special advantage in mm. recruiting and then we pivoted that towards a developer facing api focused on sharing referral flows and I, my ample experience in growth made me a very good founder for that and they like that and I think that's a, is interesting in terms of like what makes you get into YC or not. And it's also interesting in terms of a team and other other factors and traction that goes into it. And so I've getting into YC and seeing it change over time is certainly very interesting. So in winter 08, we were approximately the 100th company backed. And then by winter 15, they had a com 100 companies in that batch. And so they had back, <laughs> I think, 1,000 at that point, maybe more, maybe 1,500. And so that everything scaled up. So in winter 08, you still had the original four partners that were involved. Robert Morris was still in Boston. So if you're in the summer batch and, or sorry, if you're in the winter batch out in California at the time, it would be just the three core partners. And then that changed to have very many other partners and just scaling everything up. And scale does change mm -hmm. the flavor of things. Just like a small liberal arts college is gonna be different than a large state school, having a hundred companies a batch versus the original, I think it was, five or eight is very small and different. But YC is great for first-time founders, I think. And so it's, it's definitely something that people should consider if they are trying to get deeper into startups. That's awesome. And was the first time you applied in 08, did you get in or did, had you applied before and had not gotten in? And then was it the time in between then that you had not gotten in? So yeah, so the timeline here, I think, is winter 08, first time applied, got in, and then founded the company in 2012 mm. and might have applied in 2013 gotcha. and then didn't. And then in 20, winter 15, after it pivoted, applied again. And I think one thing that happened in between, just as far as you're tracking YC scale, is the movie The Social Network yeah. came out, which immediately doubled the number of people applying mm. to join YC. And I think a lot of people don't quite appreciate how much that movie impacted the zeitgeist around startups. Because when you're in startups, you, and especially in Silicon Valley, you think this is everything. Every cafe you go to, you hear people talking about the, the company they're building. But the rest of the world is not like that. And so when you have a blockbuster <laughs> movie about how awesome startups yeah. are and how you can make a billion dollars, and that's how that's really cool then a lot of people think that's really good. And it's actually a long line of films where the villain is the cool thing. And so most mafia movies, for example, the mafiosos are terrible people and they're, they're, yeah, they're yeah. conflicted at the very least. But then everyone watching these movies is like, oh yeah, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. And do you, did you remember that part of the movie? He's talking about putting a gun to somebody's head. Yeah. Like the, like <laughs> the, the zeitgeist shifts as far as what's awesome. And so when you have a movie about the social network, about some corrupt mm -hmm. uh, founder... It turns into, hey, I, I want to be a billionaire like Zuck too. And of course, that movie is largely <laughs> not true, but the, the movie does not track reality. So for example, there's this big girlfriend uh, envy and jealousy thread going on. And he's had the same consistent girlfriend since before Facebook. And now he's married. So the, the whole, yeah. that, that whole is just a complete fiction. And this is like the conclusion <laughs> of the movie. He's like just staring at profiles on Facebook related to his girlfriend. But the zeitgeist shifted around that same time. And so there are very many more companies, I think that they really started to scale at that time. Yeah. 
And as far as like why some people get in or why, why they don't, I think there's a bunch of factors. They say that they want to back every reasonable founder. Their model is basically take a shit ton of fur, almost yeah. no money. And their impl implied valuation of a 7% stake giving 100K is nothing compared to what you can get in these frothy times. Mm. And so it's incredibly easy to make money in their position if one or two of your companies do well and they're actually good at what they do. And so very many of their companies do well. And so they're just one of the best VCs that are out there. But the that model implies you should get as many people in the portfolio as possible and everybody reasonable. And I think they're trying to cut every bottleneck away for what would allow you to scale. And so in terms of the risks that might, if somebody's listening to this and considering applying to YC, some things to consider are if you're a solo founder, then get a co-founder. Another is that if you haven't launched a product, launch a product, get it out there. And most of the reasons people give for why they don't want to do that are not very good. Mm. And so this is just, you know, the start of YC, this will be it. Like you want to start that graph to grow and then demo day comes and then you have a very good set of traction results for getting VCs to come and back you. And there's a lot that goes into what exactly that three month period of growth looks like, but it, basically your company should look like that all the time. So like, what, shouldn't you always be thinking about how yeah. to grow as fast as possible and doing everything you can to make uh, your company look as good as possible and if you're recruiting and PR and sales to have that social pressure, social validation of other uh, past companies come in. Anyway, I can go on. Yeah. I One thing you said that really perked my ears up was that your 2012, 2013 um, startup, they didn't love it because you didn't have recruiting. Yeah. Do you, I think we were talking with a, a previous um, guest and, and one of the things brought up was more of the founder market fit. Do you feel like Y Combinator puts a pretty um, heavy stress on that as well? And would that have changed had you had maybe a veteran recruiting partner? Yeah. So when you talk to recruiters, it's clear that some of them are very good, but most of them are absolutely terrible. They don't measure anything and they don't use any data and they don't understand software and they don't build systems. And when you look at recruiting software, it's all absolutely terrible. So the idea that you need to come from the recruiting industry in order to build recruiting software, I think is absurd. So I think right off the bat, I disagree with that perspective vehemently. And of course, I think I'm awesome. So... <laughs> Uh, to, to have it be some personal thing, <laughs> let alone that if you consider the context of what it's like to work at a company that's growing very fast that needs to recruit very quickly, then you definitely learn a lot yeah, about absolutely. recruiting in that process. For sure. For how, how high scale companies need to grow. And so I think that is, I don't want to make it too much about my story per se, as far as whether there's a founder fit. I think very often the biggest red flag that I see is when somebody is in a space that is complicated and does not have an initial set of partners they're working with to help you build the product. So unless you know exactly what you want to build from personal experience, then you should talk to people that have that problem before you start solving it. Unless it's so obvious that you don't really need to. And what's a good example? Self-driving cars might be a good example. Everyone knows how self-driving cars could be awesome in terms of, and not to say that it's easy to do, but that you don't need to be in the automotive industry per se to start working on the automation related to that. And other areas might be very important to have a connection there. So what's off the top of my head, after you finish med school, there's a residency process and you get placed within a hospital. And yep. how does that process work? Shouldn't there be software to make that more efficient? I don't know anything about that besides. But you know the system. And so I'd be a terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know yeah, a little yeah. bit about it. I know enough to like know who I talk to my five or 10 yeah. friends that are doctors or nurses or whatever that work in hospitals that I would go and talk to them first. And so what I see very often is founders that are working on something and don't even have that where they aren't connected yeah. to the industry. Yeah. And you see this a lot in areas where I focus as far as robotics, because 
we touch on a lot of laggard industries. So you touch on construction and manufacturing and farming and logistics and transportation. And if you are building something for farmers and you don't know anything about farming, you better go and talk to some farmers. <laughs> like this is, this is, and it's really obvious when you start talking to them because do you have a design partner? Do you mm -hmm. have any LOIs? Like what are their problems? How do you characterize the value that the product that you're building is going to help them because that's the core thing you're trying to optimize for is certainly you can optimize for your revenue, but really you're trying to help them. You're trying to help. So for example, for farming, if you don't understand how the labor market works, the automation you're going to build with robotics is not going to work well. So you better understand how farming labor works and it's complicated. Yeah. You know? So some things are incredibly high skilled actually in farming yeah. and people don't have an intuition for that because they think if you're using a shovel, then that's stupid work or whatever. Like you didn't go to college right. so you be some ditch digger and we just have this general disrespect for work. And the thing I want to stress immediately is I have respect for all kinds of work. And especially when you start to see it done, how incredibly talented so many different people are. And so in the world of robotics, if you're coming in thinking we're going to automate this, you better have an understanding of what's there. And that means you have a connection to the company, the companies that are in that space. And so I think the founder market fit, if you're coming from that space, you can certainly understand it well. And, but oftentimes insiders also don't understand how things should be. Mm -hmm. So in the example of recruiting, I still think, like I said, this product doesn't exist today, the, the one that we had built. And I really wish it did. And if you talk to people that do recruiting, they're not satisfied with the tools that are out there. I think one of the complex things about recruiting as counterintuitive is that different companies at different scales have different needs. And so if you have a small startup or even something in tech or outside of tech, or if you have Walmart or Target or the kind of hiring that they do, or some call center in Tennessee, like whatever it happens to be, they actually have very different recruiting needs despite doing the same product on the surface mm -hmm. of it. So there are things called applicant tracking systems that are for tracking how people go through a hiring pipeline. And there are like five, six popular ones. And why are there five or six? Why isn't there one? And the answer is that it's really a term that doesn't really apply to, to everything. I would say CRM is like that as well. So how you yeah. deal with customers. If you are a sandwich shop, your CRM needs are not the same as just a traditional sales team. Makes say. sense. And so like with YC and then now being a venture capitalist, do you think that the, do you think YC shaped the, your approach as a venture capitalist, shaped your network that you use as a venture capitalist? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, certainly YC helps dramatically expand my network within tech. And so I was coming from Boston. So after I went to Carnegie Mellon, moved to Boston, worked for iRobot. And iRobot and Boston generally, sorry, is a, Boston generally doesn't have the same startup outlook. And this is really a lot of practical questions. Would somebody join a seed stage company? Do they think stock is valuable? And so when the first time we're, we're doing this, actually, we were based in Boston, moved out to California to do YC, and then had a house the entire time we were in Boston. So I actually moved back to Boston and then decided that was no good. So moved back to California. <laughs> Part of it, the context was that we got a lead investor from our seed round that was in New York. So we wanted to be closer to them as well. And really, the, the problem here is the, the outlook of the environment. And so Silicon Valley and YC are both very startup driven. And some people don't like that when it becomes phony or everyone thinking they're changing the world, whatever lampoon you get in the show Silicon Valley. But I think that it is the right approach. So if you think about what YC did, they essentially, almost from first principles, changed how VC worked in order to make things work better. For example, many VCs would sit on boards and then that would limit the number of companies they'd back. So you can't have their strategy of backing a very large number of companies. So they don't sit on boards and they want to back a very large number of companies so they can't do very much due diligence. And they found at the earliest stages, a 10 minute conversation is mm. going to be enough to understand whether they want to back you or not. And then 
they're very founder friendly because they're made by founders. And so one thing that I'd like to see shifting in VC, and certainly I'm a part of this, is having people that have been founders go into VC. And it's funny when we talk about access to VC because most VCs or very many VCs traditionally come from non-engineering backgrounds and have not been founders. And this is starting to change and it should change. I would say to the point where Tango VC is not going to hire an investing partner that hasn't been a founder. I don't think you have the empathy or the experience and very often the operating experience that then would help companies that we would need. And others reflect this as well. So many partners at YC now are former founders, obviously, and Mar uh, the Andreessen Horowitz folks, they talk about it as some experience required. And I think that's reasonable. So yeah. I can imagine a very experienced operator that has been senior at a large startup that is not quite a founder that might fit. And companies like Sequoia certainly hire a lot of folks that are like that, that have a lot of deep experience, but more often than not, they're also founders. So I think that YC definitely infected how I think about these things, but really it's just the right approach to things. If you look at VC from first principles as a founder, especially, there are some things that are so glaringly obvious that only entrenched group of finance folks would not think they're weird. For example, it used to be the case that when a company was doing its financing, the VC's legal bills would be paid by the company that was getting the money. So one of the first things you do after you get the money from a VC is pay some of it back for the legal fees. And it's, hey guys, what the fuck? Pay your own legal bills. You charge a management fee over your funds. You have assets under management and a direct fee related to things that should pay your operating expenses. Why should companies pay this? And that has largely stopped because it doesn't make any sense. And there's similar things in terms of owner's terms where people invest. And certainly YC has helped push that with the safe just document set to be able to get very clean docs coming in because there are very many aggressive terms towards VCs or for VCs. Crossed my mind as you were talking about this. Would sort of the skill set that you're looking for a partner or for somebody at Tango change if it wasn't a seed fund? Does more of the private equity type background make sense for later stage than it does for seed stage? Yeah, so the way you could look at that is that as a company matures, the way it's judged approaches asymptotically that of a public company. So what kind of free cash flow do you uh, create? What are your defensible positions? What are your advantages? What are your partnerships? What does your supply chain look like? What are the risks involved in that? And so as a company develops, it definitely gets easier. And interestingly enough, I think one, one side effect of that is you could say, oh, so a later stage VC should have people that analyze things that are like private equity folks or public market investors. And I think the public market investors, private equity folks know this. And so now <laughs> they're starting to invest in later stage. And so mm -hmm. actually I think seed is still going to be very strong. And then you might SPAC very fast. So then you have a direct application of those same ideas of we can judge this like a public company. So why don't we take it public? And the there are some really interesting artifacts within the world of startups that show how things have changed. So the reason that we have four-year vesting on stock traditionally is that would typically be how long it would take a company to get liquidity and go public. And you'd go public with 50 million in revenue with a much, much smaller scale. And so the idea that a company goes public in four years is absurd, except that it used to be the store is a norm. And because public markets were different and the traction mm. that a company had, the requirements changed. And so I think we should move into a world where more companies go public faster. And you see this with a SPAC craze of a lot of speculative tech companies, speculative in the sense that they don't have a lot of traction. They have a lot of interesting technology. They're going into SPACs and public market investors can get access to them. And there's a bunch of dimensions on this. One of them is just the structure of a SPAC and who gets paid when for what and what risks. And so there are certainly some things to iron out as far as the compensation that some folks in the SPAC process get before 
they've earned it, I would say. Separately, you have this question of should public market retail investors be buying tech stocks? And I think the answer is unambiguously yes, as an index especially. Because yeah. while you might get higher risk for some companies, it's really where a lot of the growth is happening. Mm -hmm. Most growth is happening sure. in tech. And most growth within tech happens at earlier stages. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to have things move public earlier, that means mainstream investors will have access to that. And for all the talk of equity and having corrupt finance system where people don't have access to growth, it is surprisingly hard to back a company at these fast growth stages. So if you look at requirements for being an accredited investor to be able to invest in a private company and uh, they're really onerous. And generally, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty hardcore capitalist and that means that you should be incentivized and rewarded for the risk that you take in the market and then be free to fail mm -hmm. so that we should not treat people like sheep when they're investing because they're buyer beware. This is a very standard part of any kind of transaction. I don't see a reason why we need to insulate investors from that, especially because many public companies are terrible. <laughs> so just because you have a long track record doesn't mean you're good. Just because you've had a lot of revenue and a good history of that doesn't mean it'll continue. And if you look at, say, Tesla versus other companies, that very clearly where public market does not believe that other car companies will catch up to them. So. Yeah, this is a great point. I was conflicted about this for a long time as to it felt like are we exposing like general investors to more risk through the SPAC process than we would otherwise. And that was the first my I was actually, I wouldn't say I was against it, but I was skeptical. Look, there are penny stocks out there that you can buy um, and those companies are trash. I think that there's a very like clear line. If you're playing in these stocks, some of the SPACs, yeah, you're taking like a larger risk reward, but we have a bunch of passive investment instruments and things like that for people who don't want to take as much risk if you want to play it safe. And the other thing too is that there's always some subset of people who will do stupid things with money, no matter like what laws you pass, no matter what what investments you do or don't give them access to. And I just don't see any other way. Like history just says that's true. Yeah. And I don't think there shouldn't be regulations. So you should be convicted of fraud if you lie about your financial statements. That should definitely be illegal to misrepresent yeah. yourself as a public company. And you should also just try to be as transparent as possible, I think, in just making things honest. And these are also some things that I still don't quite understand about finance, where the way you have these quarterly earnings reports and all the data is in computers that... Basically, I don't understand why we are ever surprised by earnings. Mm -hmm. Why aren't companies going against volatility just by having a daily update of projections? So when you think about how normal software systems update and finance just potentially being a software system, I think you could eliminate a lot of the crazier things that are going on with respect to the volatility that you see in different places. Like you were saying, people find risk in different places. So if you look at crypto, it's certainly uh, Wild West. And this is not new. So if you have... a uh, country like China that is growing at 7 to 10% yearly for decades, that growth opportunity is so large. And also, I hope that those billionaires stay out of jail. And so the just the risk here is so absurd. Mm -hmm. So you can say there's an amazingly solid growth track record of decades. And also, this is the same government that was in charge when they had the Cultural Revolution. There's been no change in administration of the single party states. Yeah, that same government without a hiccup is going to turn into the United States. Okay, maybe we'll see. <laughs> so the point is there's risk everywhere. You just have to think yeah. in the most basic terms that you're going to find it. And so what is the purpose of the SEC? The purpose should be to make things transparent and fair. And one interesting thing that we did at Tango is shift from a 506B to a 506C. And what that means is I can go on a show like this and say, hey, we're fundraising. And the reason we could do that is because 506B requires you to limit who you market to, to 
make sure you only market to accredited mm. investors. So I couldn't on a podcast say that we're fundraising. 506C says you can market to anyone, but you have to verify that somebody's an accredited investor before they come in. So I, I actually love this setup because it allows me to say things like talk about the inside baseball game of how VC works. And I think that should be more legible and transparent. And so being able to t talk about it publicly is just the natural way I would want to blog and talk about entering this new space, especially as a former founder coming in. What's funny is that I, when I talk to founders, I very often have almost like a, a pure conversation about fundraising because I, as a VC, can give them money, but also as a former founder and a student of VC, now as someone coming into it, I can tell them how these things work. And so some founders don't understand such basic things around fundraising, like getting a lead investor. A lot of people don't understand how psychically important mm -hmm. it is to have a lead. They think you can just get a pile of checks. And while that is true, it's there's a limit to what you can do. And there's a different approach to your fundraising, whether or not you have a lead. And in my personal experience is that we have, for my second startup, we were fundraising and there is a firm, very well-respected firm that was on the fence and sitting down across the table, visiting our office and was in the middle of saying how they're interested in us, but they know they can commit. They were looking for a lead. And what they didn't know at the time is we had a lead like the day before we got it committed. And it's like, oh, a lead they know. And then he was in like that mm -hmm. on the spot, like converted right then. And so just that's how important that psychic issue of being a lead is. And it's just one example among many of how when I talk to founders, I try to help people understand how this game works. And a lot of this stuff is is just narrative and play. So when people talk, for example, what do you call a name for a round? Is it a pre-seed? Is it a seed? Is it a seed plus bridge? Like a pre-A, like A plus? What are you mm -hmm. calling these rounds? All of that is not material. It doesn't actually mean anything. What matters is how much you've raised, on what terms, from whom, and what their involvement is, and what that unlocks as far as the product and distribution that you can get. And so there's the first principles view of what financing looks like. What are the docs? What are the stats that go with it? But then the narrative still exists. So you still want to play it up. Recently, I've seen companies that do some interesting things entering into YC. And I love participating in these. So if you have a company that's in YC right now, please reach out, Ivan at Tango VC. And the idea is you can, at the start of YC, raise early YC round. And it works like this. You just got into YC and you say, hey, you want to raise a little bit. And let's say you want to raise a few million at demo day later, you raise 500K at the start of YC. And so only small checks can get in, which makes my fund in a nice position to leverage that. And then when they do go to demo day, they say, hey, we're raising 2 million, 500's already done. So the first investor they talk to when they're raising that too, they take that uh, the 500 table. from just a few months ago yeah. and call that as this yeah, is already I'm done, which sounds great for like social proof. And all of this stuff is narrative on, on how people spin it. And that's great to know so that you can position the narrative the way you want to, you want to talk about it. And there's a bunch of warts that companies have and how you position that definitely matters. So if a company has been around for three years, why? Why are you only now just raising a seed? Like what's been going on? And there's definitely positive negative ways of talking about that. And I could bring up many such examples of ways of tuning a conversation with an investor so you get a better outcome. And I, the point is I tend to have these conversations a lot when companies are pitching me because I say what I think. And it seems like most investors don't, and which is surprising. They want to keep their edge or something. I don't know why they don't talk about this. Kind of reminds me of we go back and talk about like maybe why some of these public companies aren't like releasing their earnings on a day to day basis with an update. I imagine most of that is also controlling the narrative. You look at these long perspectives that come out every quarter and you're like, oh, wow, they're really trying to shape what this means. I imagine that entire thing kind of ebbs and flows throughout in our entire finance industry. If OK, cool. What, what does this number mean? You look at it like a Series E company raising their Series E and you're like, oh, my gosh, they're probably close to going public. It's going to be more expensive of a share. When in reality, their internals may be completely 
completely bonkers and you just don't know. So that's a really interesting point you bring up. I completely agree. Yeah, controlling narrative is very important for marketing or company for sure. Uh, so when I talk about some ideal of how financial reporting could be much better, that is ignoring the human element of this, which is some mistakes. I, I make that mistake. Uh, so there's materially, what, what should the system do? What yeah, can it yeah. do? And then what do people are they trying to get done? And the fact is public companies need to be marketing. Totally. They need to say now why they're awesome all the time. So controlling the narrative becomes more important, not less important. So we've talked a lot about like mechanics of fundraising. Tell us about Tango VC. What types of companies does Tango invest in? So broadly, it's machine learning, automation, and robotics. And a lot of those terms can be squishy to, to nail it down. Mm-hmm. Robotics, maybe people understand what that entails. And so the, the thing with all of those is that there's a technology edge and one that I personally understand really well. And so actually Tango, I think long-term will be a generalist fund, but I think partners should have an edge when they're investing to understand things. So when I look at deals that are in fintech or healthcare, I don't think I understand them. So what I want to do is expand the partnership to get people like me, but not in my niche of robotics and machine learning. And so we have this initial focus on those areas. And within that, there's actually a huge diversity. So while it might seem narrow, it's actually very large. Mm. So if you look at natural language processing and how it's changing marketing, how it's changing how people, if you look at yeah. computer vision and how it's affecting almost everything and how very many different industries can be affected by computer vision, like insurance claims or medical imaging, though I don't usually touch that as much, and other like construction. So we have a company called Quartz.co. It's, it's really incredible. And what they do is computer vision on construction sites. Mm. And so even just basically having a camera on site allows you to have incredible analytics that would normally be done by a person. And then once you start preventing errors on a construction yeah. site, you're talking about the software, which is very low marginal costs, saving millions of dollars for builders. And that's just incredible leverage. And it's one of these things that in 10 years would be shocked that it wasn't that way for a long time. But basically what happened is that from the time I was in Carnegie Mellon and focused on computer vision and getting a master's in robotics, from that time where almost nothing worked, like you couldn't, you could recognize a logo, you could not recognize a cat was in a photo. And then 2012, 2013, that started to shift with deep learning starting to work. And now all these computer vision applications are, are taking off. And what that means is that a robot like a car can recognize that you have a pedestrian or a cyclist or a stop sign or uh, these other things that help you do self-driving. So robotics and computer vision are very closely related. There's another dimension there, which is the manipulation side, where deep learning is finally starting to affect how you interact with the world. And so if you think about manipulation of a robot, what it means is how you interact with the world. And so for most robots you think about, they're actually just moving around and barely mm-hmm. interacting. And so a self-driving car should not interact with anything. It's just tires on the road. That's ideal. Don't bump into anything, please. <laughs> a drone, don't interact with anything. Don't touch anything. Maybe fire a missile, maybe. But really it's perception. Bring me my package. Take a photo. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, there is actually a yeah. company called yeah. Robotics that I think is highlighting yeah. the difference in the timeline here. So when I was in grad school, there was a PhD candidate named Jonathan Hurst that was working on a leg. And it was a biodynamic leg. Actually, that means something different in farming. So it's a biomechanically correct version <laughs> of a leg. So if you compare that to Honda's Asimo, which always had 25 to 30 motors constantly active, and it would always actively stabilize itself, it's much more like a big dog or Boston Dynamics view of you have springs and mm. compliant legs and you're reacting to your environment. And he was working on that from like 2001 wow. and then had a company, I think it's a 10 years old at this point, And it's finally starting to, it's actually amazing what they have. They have a biped robot that can then be folded in the back of a truck, unfold itself, get out, carry a package to your doorstep. And that, that, that technology is going to take, that is I'm not an investor. I just am yeah, a fan yeah. of Jonathan and that team. And, but that highlights 
once you start interacting with the world, the kinds of things that you can do, and it's all very exciting that that work. It is still very hard and very early. So I'd say manipulation is earlier than computer vision or natural mm. language processing. And so when I back companies at the seed stage, one pattern I've noticed is that I like companies with incremental autonomy, because when you look at self-driving cars, I think there is this promise of having immediate no driver robotaxis, and that takes a long time yeah. to pay off because the exceptional cases you need to tackle are so difficult. And so incremental autonomy, a good example is a company like Locomation, which is a company we back. And they have a platoon set up where you have a human driving a truck and a follower truck behind them. And that follower truck is autonomous. And there are regulations that say a human driver can't drive for more than 10 yeah. hours out of 24. So yep. you prevent them from being fatigued. But what you have is a person resting in the back and then they toggle. So two trucks get to 20 hours of progress in 20 hours rather than in two days. And so that increase in productivity is enormous. And so you're talking about an industry with razor thin margins. If they save 5% on gas, they're very happy. So if you save 50% or 40% on labor, you're, you're ecstatic yeah. to the point where companies that don't have this technology will immediately not be able to compete. And so that's a good example because they still have a human in the loop and they can launch and they can make a lot yeah. of money really yeah. soon, much faster than other companies. Um, I'm just trying to remember what exactly is public here. I think that they they did announce a large purchase order of 1,100 truck systems, and that is that is a very large number. And what that means is that they're actually going to then have those trucks on the road. And then those, it's like Tesla as far as self-driving, where instead of Waymo having a testing fleet, you have every Tesla owner sending in data to be able to make the autonomy better. And so you have hundreds of thousands of uh, vehicles operating. So similarly, you could have a trucking fleet that's actually launched in the market, not waiting for full autonomy. You get the data faster than the companies that are directly targeting full autonomy. So it's not that I don't like full autonomy. It's that the actual path to getting a yeah, yeah, product totally. scale is the incremental autonomy. And that's super exciting. And there's a bunch yeah. of companies, I've just noticed, I've backed a bunch of companies that are like that. That So another example is teleoperation, where you can start out with an operator that is a human that is not in the vehicle controlling the robot. And then maybe you can automate parts of it and then you can control two robots at once remotely and then maybe four and then maybe eight. And eventually, if you just look at it as far as the operating cost of the fleet you're doing, it asymptotically approaches full autonomy. Yeah. So this is gradual view and you don't have to solve every edge case in order to launch that product. So as CJ's stage investor, that's really important to have that path because we could all, it's really interesting because there's two parts when you're fundraising. There's your vision and dream. And the, the whole reason why VC works is that some of the companies that you back change markets fundamentally. You, you do more with less and you make a huge dent in a big market. And it's very defensible because there's very often technology that goes with that. So the reason it's changing is hard for others to replicate. So you have this big dream. Separately, you have to pay the bills. You have to pay rent, you have to hire, and you're going from a team of one or two to five to 10 to 20 as it grows. You have to get traction from customers. You have to ship products to them to make them happy and you have to do everything else to you know keep the lights on and so you have these two threads of the long term and the short term and so you can have a long-term vision that is going to change the world and your short-term vision better be something that is understandable mm -hmm. and at the seed stage it's even the most chicken scratch model would be good so often i see companies that don't have this so mm -hmm. For example, you're fundraising. So how many folks do you want to hire? Who are those folks? How, when are you going to hire them? How much are they going to be paid? And on the sales side, who's going to be on your sales team? And what is their, the comp structure? And how many folks do you expect? Is it just going to be founder-led for a little while? Because then you have an expected number of uh, leads that you'll close and then traction that comes from that. And so you have a given target of your ARR or whatever the, the metric is by the next time you fundraise. And so 
Some folks don't come to fundraising with answers to these questions. They don't know what their sales looks like. Uh, they don't know how many folks they want to hire. They don't know exactly what rate of traction they'll be able to get once they launch the product. And the problem with that is that you're asking for money to get customers and to build product. And so you better know the mapping of that. like a machine <laughs> where the, the money comes in on one end yeah. and out comes traction yeah. on the other end or out comes product yeah. on the other end. And so the most basic model, just think of a spreadsheet. So it's founders out there, think of a spreadsheet where every row is a month or a quarter and the columns are headcount, like headcount burn, the total burn, the, the overhead that you have, and then your growth rate for your revenue and your total revenue. And that produces then uh, a path of burning down and then you reach a certain revenue target. Just give me that. Mm. And I'm saying this frustrated because I often see really bright founders that don't have the most, building this model takes 10 minutes. It really does. And then what, what I see very often is a revenue projection starting next year that then mm -hmm. has a number that's low and then goes like a hockey stick going up. And I don't believe those graphs at all. Like the logical reason of why a company will take over a market is so much more compelling to me than a graph that shows numbers up into the right. And I, what's a good example of this? So Tango VC is very small right now. So we only have a few million under management. And assets under management is a core thing in VC. And so I was just looking this up. We could have a single digit millions and maybe tens of millions and then hundreds of millions and then billions and then tens of billions and hundreds of billions under management. And I'm keeping the number up because BlackRock manages $9 trillion. So in terms of exponential yeah. growth, like how big can a firm get? There are so many 10Xs that can happen here. And so it's very easy for me, like I could have an investor presentation, assets for management by year and like every year 10X and then after a while I have the trillions. And that's nice, that's fun, but it's also meaningless. So you need to, how are you gonna get there? What is the path yeah. that, 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 takes, that takes you there? Amazing, by the way, for, for those of you listening who heard about Locomation there, we do have episode number nine with Chatin. So if you do wanna hear a little bit more in depth about Locomation, nice. yeah. So Yvonne, your company is, is on episode nine as well. Yeah, so he, he's awesome. And you, you get this generation of practical founders that want to ship things. And this is also a Carnegie Mellon connection. Folks might have heard about how Uber gutted part of Carnegie Mellon. And what they specifically did was get a lot of folks from the National Robotics Engineering Consortium to come work for Uber. It's and next door to me right now. <laughs> nice. That's a, the, yeah. that, that's so cool. Uh, <laughs> so the, the people talk about this in a funny way, uh, as if, are we mad when nerds get paid really well? I don't see why anyone's mad about anything. No. And then they go and do startups after learning how it's done at a big company. That's all very reasonable, in my opinion. And so the, the NREC reputation, though, was they shipped real systems. And so that's why Chetan and team at Locomation are just so exciting, because yeah. there's a lot of pie-in-the-sky ideas of especially when you start to see like off the shelf robot arms trying to interact with something in the environment and it's you need to make something that, that scales and it's very hard and a simple example is with a robot arm is you have a manipulator that grips something and you might have a novel a sensor on top of the manipulator and then you think oh i'm gonna sort recycling let's just say and how many things can you pick up before that manipulator is totally degraded like it's breaking literally because if it's not in the millions of items you're probably not economical and mm -hmm. so there's an interesting aspect of robotics here where you're, while robotics does replace labor, you have an operating and capital cost that goes with that. And so you need to have an understanding of your performance characteristics, how much better or worse are you compared to a human, and then also how much does the machine cost and how it changes. One really interesting trend that I'm excited to track is low fidelity motors. So most industrial automation robotics that are super expensive, the reason they're expensive is because those motors are 
very fine tolerances, which means they can do things like install a car door very precisely. And that is yeah. often not what you care about. And what I'm super excited about, but I haven't seen enough here, is high tolerances, which means lower quality motors in arms that then have some proprioception of sensing where the arm is, combined with a vision system for deep learning to be able to have something a lot more akin to how our arms work. So if you think about the human hand, it's actually the human hand is remarkably good. So it's almost a bad example. So oh, let's, yeah. let's talk about a raccoon hand. A raccoon hand can pick up and open most things, or a bear hand has these big claws. So it's really like coarse, almost almost like a a stump. <laughs> like, what can you do with holding something just with your fists? And there's actually quite a lot. Uh, so you could probably pick a strawberry with that. Uh, so there's all these things that uh, would be better with a human hand doing it, but are, then make a much more expensive system in the end. It's really amazing. I was reading some publication. I think it was OpenAI and what they were doing with robot hands and like why the problem is so difficult. And it really came down to the degrees of freedom mm-hmm. that the human hand actually has. Mm-hmm. And it's actually really amazing how good our hands are the human hand is the most mechanically advanced thing in the known universe yeah the, there's literally nothing better in nature than the human hand so uh, a good example is i'm uh if you pick up a piece of cardboard and you hold it you'll be accurate to i think sub millimeter uh, so you'll be able to tell how thick something is that accurately just from the distance that your fingers are apart and we don't usually think of these as skills as far as how advanced they are but of course when you see somebody playing guitar or piano is when you try to do that with a pair of pliers, let's say, it's not going to be the same. It's, it's, it's entirely different. Uh, so human hands are incredible, so, but there's a huge number of jobs that don't require hands. And so there's uh, a much more coarse. Uh, there's actually an example from I think it was Willow Garage, which they got bought by Google when they're buying a bunch of robotics companies, but they gave a demo, I think it was Willow Garage, of one of their robots, which just had uh, two pincher arms and they cleaned an entire room. What was funny, they only showed the robot cleaning the room at sped up at points and if you, it was autonomous, it'd be amazing because the robot butler everyone wants. And the point is teleoperated yeah. by a human. And so it is, they wanted to prove that the hardware is not the limiting issue. That is the AI. How mm-hmm. even with a pair of pliers, you could essentially clean an entire room, like fold laundry and put dishes, uh, put dishes away. There's like a number of things that we think are very fine, dexterous activities, but actually are not that you could do it with much simpler manipulators. Super interesting. One thing that always sticks out to me whenever I talk to you is you have this amazing view of technology, everything from AI to traveling to space to Adams's bits. And you gave a talk, shout out to 99 Tartans. You gave a talk there that I listened to. And how did you go about developing that view? And take us through some of that. Take us through like the furthest reaches and maybe the, the bigger like bets in your mind when it comes to, maybe not AI, because we talked a lot about that, but space and like manufacturing technology and what you... I think referred to once as what we could potentially do with atoms in terms of manufacturing. Yeah, so the there's quite a bit here. And so you're asking a few different questions. One of them is like, sure. what motivates me and how I got on this path? Another is, where are we going? And I think they're related in that before I had talked about how a founder needs to have the long-term vision in mind along with the very practical things you want to do next. And so when I think about the very practical VC side of this, I'm going to make a bunch of seed investments and prove that I am good at this so that later stage funds Sorry, later funds, like fund two, fund three will be larger and I can scale all of this up. And that's like the most basic practical view of this. But then on a more fundamental level, I, I, I wish more people did this where they started from what they really care about from first principles and think that about that when they're considering their next jobs. And so when I consider what I want to do, I can get a job almost anywhere. It's relatively easy when you're a senior yeah. product person with my experience and I'm very technical, most more technical than most PMs and more experienced than most folks. Like I have this founding experience. And so when you have that opportunity, what do you do? 
And then if you don't ask why you're doing what you're doing, you're going to end up in a bad place. And some people are motivated by relatively mundane things. Let's say money as a motivator. A lot of finance appears to be like that. And I like money. I want more of it. But when I think about what I want to do with more money, it's not getting a faster car or getting a second home, a nice car and a second home. So it's, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, so I'm rich by any standard of human history. And so then when you really think about where money comes to play and what your purpose here is, then you, you better have a, a good idea. And I think that I'm going to go philosophical for a moment. Like fundamentally, the you could almost define morality as the suffering or thriving of conscious creatures. And so when you hear somebody say, hey, you need to impact somebody else's life, what that actually means is that there are other conscious creatures like human brains that are flourishing instead of suffering. And that feels really good. And this can justify a whole number of careers. This can justify being a teacher or a cop or a parent. There's, there are giving, you know, volunteering in your church. There's a bunch of ways that matters. And when I think about my edge in technology, the reason why technology is so amazing is because just fundamentally it allows you to do more with less. And so the uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse. So if you look at famine and we have almost no problems with famine, except for Stalinist throwbacks like North Korea is having a problem right now. And so I cannot wait for those people to be liberated. And then if you look at disease, COVID sounds really bad, right? And then you look at tuberculosis deaths 200 years ago and realize yeah. 1% of people were mm -hmm. dying from tuberculosis like every year. Like what the yeah. fuck? Yeah. That's a shockingly large number and largely totally. solved. And so technology allows us to do more with less. And so you can study history and see this too. So if you look at why famine stopped, it's like, why did famine stop? Do people even know? Because uh, they really should study history here. What happened is that a steam engine that powered... Uh, the pumps that took water out of coal plants were able to get more coal. The same is true for iron ore. You put iron and coal together and you get steel and you make those engines better and they become mobile and you have the steel rails that mm -hmm. a locomotive tr travels on and you can get fertilizer where you need it. And that is fundamentally why people stopped starving, uh, why the population started to escape. There's a bunch of books written to this enlightenment now more from less, uh, where innovation comes from. These are all very good books. I, I highly recommend. I love Enlightenment now. Great recommendation. Uh, there's a lot There's a lot of fun books. I like where innovation comes from, yeah. Yeah, where innovation comes from is fun because there's both the history of these things and also where they can go. And some things are super mundane and surprising, and there are a bunch of founder stories in there. One of my favorites is so mundane. It's uh, So you have people traveling on trains versus the... So you had luggage and you need to travel it. That's one date. And the next date is uh, when they put wheels on luggage. And so there's a shocking amount of time in between needing luggage and getting it around easily. And wh why didn't it happen? Because people weren't clever. Anyway, so ba back to motivations. Yeah. Um, technology allows you to do more with less. And fundamentally, having technology develop at a faster pace will advance human civilization. And so working on this is incredibly exciting. And you got the day-to-day, -day, which is super exciting, of going with founders and helping them out. And founders are some of the most intelligent and driven and optimistic people that are out there and actually making a difference. And then you have the long term, which is that you help technology make an impact. And I think that's really a big deal. And the reward for doing it well is doing it at a higher scale. And so that's how you go to, to scale this whole thing. And the reason to do it is not because I'll make a boatload of money off of the carry. I will. The reason to do it is that what that implies is you've created such a ridiculous amount of value in the companies that you've helped. And that's, that impact is so important. Working at Lyft, you have 1% of Americans that have ridden for, that have driven for rideshare companies. Yeah. And that is, that is a shockingly large economic impact. And it's funny because Lyft has all these brand things around riding up front. And I remember pulling that number, actually. Like, I very distinctly remember, it was actually one of the first things I had to do when I started there, was actually pull this number and just, like, roughly figure out what this calculation was. 
And I was actually shocked that it was around that. I thought it would be lower. No. It's shocking. And then you consider that like, kids don't drive and retirees don't drive. And it yeah. it's really is a shocking economic impact. And the, the funny thing with Lyft is that they have this whole positive brand of yeah, sit in the front seat fist bumps and, and, mustache and better boyfriend and yeah. yellow, uh, like pink mustaches, right? all that. And it's like, yeah, what about people just getting to where they want to go faster or getting yeah. paid, having a job? Those, that's the real impact of rideshare. And it's fucking awesome. If you have jobs for 1% of Americans, that is nuts. That is so good. And so anybody in one of those jobs, of course, might have problems. They're, I'm not saying it's not, it's perfect. And, you know, there's no such thing as perfect. Every ideal is a judge. So we, as we approach to get things to get better. But the purpose of technology is then to help us have an easier and better life. And so then the technology that we back is really important. And so there's just a direct line from the base of morality that we want to help human flourishing. And that's very often done with technology and while resisted by incumbents is then supported by startups. And so if you help startups get better at tech, you're going to improve the world. And it's really on the nose when it comes to healthcare or medical tech, but even things like farming mm -hmm. is such a big one, logistics. And so I'm wonkish on the economic side. So if you just like this talk of rideshare, so if you just get people to where they want to go faster and safer and more reliably, higher security, that is, that is a very good thing. And if you look at places that don't have that, it's obvious right away if you don't have it. So if you don't feel safe in the middle of the night after you've left a party and you want to get home, that sucks. That's, that's a very real issue. So it, saying you want to get home faster is not some... When you look at it on the aggregate scale, it seems so inhuman. But on a personal scale, every single ride is somebody's livelihood, somebody's rent, helping support their kids. And every single person getting somewhere has a reason to be there. And so there's definitely a really important aspect. So that's go ahead. Just uh, yeah, just to touch on the the Uber Lyft impact. My hometown, Buffalo, New York, didn't have ride hailing for the longest time, and the amount of you know drunk driving deaths, the amount of just car accidents that maybe didn't involve a death, just due due to alcohol, due to things like that, it was just really bad, and it almost felt like this cruelty that like the lawmakers wouldn't let them operate. There was no access, no economic access, no moral access, no any sort of factor that you could measure that said you shouldn't let the, these companies in. But yet they just held out for lack of understanding. It goes to your point of, to some extent, you'll have people who like resist, but ultimately it wins out. And it, we expanded that market with with Project Bigfoot and, and it's operating, it's doing well as far as I can tell. And I think it was it's done a lot actually for the city in terms of ability to get around and things like that. And you're absolutely right. Employing people, getting people around safely, it's huge. Yeah, I think that we could talk about self-driving all day and sure. the impact. You and I could certainly is. talk about self-driving all certainly. day. <laughs> so, I mean, just, yeah. to, just to push this point a little bit into the future, there is more space dedicated to sleeping cars in cities than sleeping people. So when we talk about affordable housing and how dense things are, there is a basic question. Can you walk to work? That would have to do with how many offices and how many apartments and houses are nearby. So if you have more space dedicated to parking than you have to those things, and certainly eliminating that ratio would be really good. And so making everything more dense. Let alone that if everything were more dense, getting around would be so much cheaper and easier and public transit mm -hmm. would be easier. And so when we think about this transition to self-driving, it's not just, oh, my Lyft ride is cheaper. It's actually the whole shape of cities will change. L.A. will be a very different city in 20 years if they actually start self-driving working and then have regulations that are related to that. Like every home built typically in most neighborhoods requires an enclosed mm -hmm. garage. You just have to have that. And streets need to be wide enough to accommodate parking on the street. And so once you start having the shift towards self-driving, you just get our land back. 
And I have a whole model of how a city should work. It's a code name, Ivanistan. So if I were running a city <laughs> or a country, what would I do? Um, yeah. We don't have enough time to go through it, but definitely parking is a surprisingly important part yeah. of it. <laughs> so like where, like how transportation networks work is a really big deal there. I feel like we got a bit of a uh, field. And so I just want to recap on like why Tango. In summary, like the technology aspect is really important and it has like really, I have a fundamental motivation to do it well. And that's why I'm doing it for the long term because the day-to-day is lovely of hanging out with founders and getting to support them. The long-term is incredibly lucrative. And then again, the reward for doing it is doing it at very high scale. And let's talk about that high scale a little bit because I think this is actually where you can get into the sci-fi side of this. So I know where the path is in front of me now, but if you just uh, consider the entire amount of power used by every human on Earth, it's about 20 trillion terawatt hours. And then if you consider the amount of light that's hitting the Earth, you've heard stats like this, like solar can power the entire world if you just have solar panels on one part of the Earth. And that is thinking way small. So if you had a sphere of solar panels that was around the radius of the distance between the Earth and the Sun, you could build what's called a Dyson sphere. And it would actually not be a hard sphere. It'd be more like a swarm of different solar panels. And you can mine mercury and get all the metals out to be able to build the swarm. It would have an internal surface area hundreds of millions of times that of Earth if you were to have a mass that you can stand on. And it would generate 20 trillion times more energy than we use on the planet. And you could do things with that, like move the sun. It's just to highlight how fucking nuts this is that we're talking about here. And the actual technology to do this is not actually that complicated. So you have a satellite that lands uh, and then starts mining and then starts shipping that off into space and manufactures something. That's just really actually straightforward manufacturing and launches that are, are, it's not some crazy AI you need to develop to be able to do this. You can build this incrementally. And I like pointing at this example because it's so fantastic. And the moment you hear it, you're like, that's nuts. We couldn't do something like that. But then you think about how it's obviously not going to be some huge army of construction workers on Mercury. It's going to be automated. So there's just a direct path from having automation going into logistics and manufacturing construction to building some of these megastructures you might find in space. And there's so that's just incredibly exciting. And I don't mean to say I'm backing a... Dyson Sphere company on the seed stage now. That's not the point. The point is that the end goal here, where we'll get, J- I think, like, go ahead. Yeah, Jake just canceled his, his LP wire when you uh, you pulled the, del- the Dyson exactly. Sphere. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I, okay, we are working on some related things. So, uh, yeah. what, what's a good example? Sorry. We'll get there eventually, I think. Yeah. So it's just, just a matter of time. And it's actually space itself is getting very exciting in terms of how much is being developed here. So, once you have launch costs go down, it's just incredible how how much gets unlocked from that in terms of manufacturing in space and then getting resources back to Earth. And actually, let's tie it back to problems here on Earth because we talk a lot about climate change and talk a lot about green jobs and how we need to change our whole economy. And I think that there is a pretty fundamental problem when people are that are environmentalists talk about the limited resources. People talk about they're essentially Marxists and the way they talk about capitalism is like this abusive system on the planet and we can't uh, survive it. Like we're going to run out of resources. And yeah. anyone that understands anything about space knows how absurd that is. It just doesn't make any sense. So when it comes to how much land you use to be able to extract resources for energy and materials on Earth, the amount of materials in space is orders of magnitude more than what we have available on the surface of the Earth. The amount of energy is many orders of magnitude more. And then when you start to think about 
just what unlimited energy gets you. It gets you things like, if you do the math, vertical farming doesn't work because energy from the sun is cheap. And so if you have yeah. a farm that has light out there, it's, it's really cool. But if you are, it's really cheap. And if you wanted to stack things up and power with LEDs, then you better be, you better have another reason to do it. So for example, there's, um, there's companies that are focusing on areas that you know aren't close to California, aren't as uh, rich in farming resources, and so that that would mean a freshness argument that comes with that. But if energy were a hundred times cheaper, there would be no reason you couldn't have much larger buildings that have farming on site to to grow things up and underground with LEDs, and then you return more of the world back to nature, yeah. and that's incredibly exciting. So if you're an environmentalist, don't you? care about the footprint that we have? Don't you want more people living in concentrated cities where we get all the energy from space or wherever nuclear power, wherever it comes from? So the technology like vision, it starts to sound utopian, but it's really, it's just not pessimistic is what it is. So if you just look from study from first principles, see what could be done out there and then try to pursue that. It is a really positive vision for the future of technology and not honestly, we're seeing like related to the social network, this is this huge trend of people thinking the technology is terrible. And it's like, Study some history, study mm -hmm. some physics, get your shit together and then learn how the world has worked and will work in the future. And then you get excited about the space. Like you can't not get excited about it. For sure. And one thing I think it's really interesting is when you talk about the future, I always think about this. We always think about the problems, but we never think about the problems we never had because of technology. We never think about the famines that we never Absolutely. had. We never think about the diseases about that the we absence. never had. Yeah. So we only project forward problems. We only think about problems that, that exist, but we very rarely think about the, the things that we avoided because of technology, because of innovation, because of all of that. In like the very near or near past, right? We talk about these small little changes that we made on self-driving cars, obviously being one of them, but even ride hailing and those pieces like the cell phone. It's in your pocket right now. I was thinking about this, my wife and I are, are expecting, and I was thinking to myself, wow, I would typically imagine reading like a, a parenting book at this point in time, but no, I'm actually like reading uh, people's firsthand experience in, in real time as I need the information. And like that alone is, oh my gosh, like you probably have- Education alone. Education, yeah. exactly. And you have education now of the child as well. And so like now the child is being educated and, and being helped for and, and prepped for in a way that I don't think that we've done in, in previous years. So like people are getting smarter, people are, are you know going to continue to then foster better technology. And now that the whole world continues to, to go on this positive flywheel towards that. So I am 100% in agreement. There's so many dimensions on this. One is the Flynn effect, uh, if you've never heard about it. IQ- is going up. So you, we have to recalibrate IQ tests all the time because people are getting smarter. And it's one standard deviation in 100 years. And that's called the Flynn effect for uh, Flynn is the psychologist that noticed this. And why is that true? It's nutrition. It is how abstract and advanced our society is. And that is absolutely incredible to the point where in a few hundred years, it might be, forget that, in a few generations, it might be unrecognizable how we go with that. And But then I'll bring it all the way back down to North Korea. I love talking about North Korea because it's really important understanding what's there. Why are there famines in North Korea? Just going back to the previous conversation here. It's like, oh, the COVID locked down the border, so there aren't many fertilizer shipments. Oh, fertilizer shipments. Why don't they just generate that from oil or natural gas like we do, make their own fertilizer? Because that's industry, it's energy, and it's uh, a production capability. It's also competitive systems and a capitalist economy versus a top-down control. You don't have just something drifting off of the Communist Party in China, so you, you have the people that suffer. And the average North Korean is two inches shorter than the average South Korean. And so you, you just have this, yeah. you have this like this hermit economy going on there that really I like it as a foil, and it's it's suffering of millions of people, and I, I love talking about it because I think more people should talk about how fucked up it is that people live in that situation, and how if China wasn't communist, it probably North Korea wouldn't be communist either. So th these are not small issues, and it reflects on our current society as far as why we're happy. And of course, there's a COVID story elsewhere in terms of 
the whole supply chains, what's going on today with in other areas besides the most destitute parts of the world. But then map this to developing countries. So if you ever hear about access to healthcare or good jobs or other issues in, in developing countries, it is really all the same issues around energy and chemistry and logistics and free markets. These are all the same issues. So, Yvonne, I think it's uh, it's time for us to move you on to our hot take, our end segment that we do with every guest. And so for this week, we have, a, as Jake would say, a spicy one, perhaps <laughs> a spicy one, mild spiciness. Not what you'd find at an Indian restaurant I would eat at. But the one that would make me sweat for sure. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Cryptocurrency took a spill this week on the news that China is cracking down on miners. What do you think this means for the short term and the long term of cryptocurrency? I feel like this dovetails on the whole China, North Korea, like discussion we just had. A little bit. Yeah. If you look at the geography and history of China, it will not last in its current form. And I don't think oppressive regimes are long for this world given the way the internet works, even with the Great Wall, given the way progress is working, given the way wealth creates consumers that demand progress. And so I think long-term, China will not maintain its current position. Now, short-term, they could do a lot of damage. <laughs> so they have a bunch of nukes, they have a billion people to suppress, and the capital controls alone in China are such that they definitely have a strong incentive of reeling in all the work on crypto. For those that don't know, if you have two countries and one of them starts to make something that's important to another. The normal economics would say that the exchange rate between those two currencies mm -hmm. would rebalance and then the effective cost of the labor in the exporting country would go up and then it would balance imports and exports. China doesn't do that because they manipulate their currency so that they maintain a low price. So essentially, they are hurting their own workers in order to make cheaper goods for Americans. So American consumers win, American manufacturers lose, and the workers in China lose. And so in that environment of incredible currency controls, when you have a way of permissionless moving money, that is a very big issue. It's also why real estate is expensive in California and the West Coast, because people can make these kinds of investments. It's like a reasonable way to take money outside of China. And so this is not at all surprising that they're going to try to crack down. You could talk about the security layer of this as far as will Bitcoin or other things survive. And I think they, they will. I think that there's way too much money invested in this as far as there's a bunch of security aspects of it. One of them is if you had a malicious actor with state resources like China, could they hurt Bitcoin? And I think the answer is yes. But they appear to be blocking the miners in China, which is interesting because there could have been a fork or there could have been other things. So the short term prediction is, of course, volatility. That's the only reasonable prediction for, for Bitcoin. The long term of cryptocurrencies as a whole is very solid. I think it's a new technology that's going to change how we do things. The economist's standard response to any one cryptocurrency is that there is no barrier to entry. And so you should have removing down mm -hmm. to commodity prices. So while there are only 21 million Bitcoin, there are many other chains and many other yeah. coins that you might be able to mint. And we'll see how that develops. And I think Ether is already pushing on that. And so that, that's more of a midterm thing in terms of how we settle things down. And so in terms of the effect of China, like the numbers will go up or down. And if you're a Bitcoin maximalist, buy the dip. And if you are, the strategy I'm trying to take, uh, have not yet executed on is just take advantage of these volatility swings to be able to do some kind of arbitrage in different places. So I think that's the most interesting aspect. If, if I were full-time investing in crypto, that's what I'd be very much looking towards, as opposed to like holding or whatever. So instead of doing that, I think the swings alone provide a huge opportunity if you're like inclined to, to pursue that. <clears throat>
I know anytime I talk to you, I leave so much more jazzed up about the future of tech, the future of everything, excited about what I do for a living, very fortunate to, to, to do what I do. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And I, you know, I love talking about this stuff and it actually goes the same way. So the day to day, I don't end up talking enough about why I'm doing what I'm doing. And so it's actually, it's very motivating and it reminds me uh, why I'm doing what I'm doing when I get asked the most you know, fundamental questions of what we're trying to do. And it's a very exciting time. It's one of my favorite lines from The Matrix, where you have one of the, the two folks, Bonin and Zion, and Neo starting his training, and it's like, it's a very exciting time. Just that line yeah. is imprinted on me, and there's just so much happening. It's cool. very exciting. For sure. Hey everyone, Arun and I are extremely grateful to have you as a Techonomics listener. As a reminder, the views expressed in the content of this podcast or anything linked in the newsletter, website, posts, or posted in social media or other platforms are that of our own and are not the views of any person, company, entity, or even any related affiliates. The content is not directed to any investors or even potential investors. It does not constitute an offer to sell or is a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. It may not be used or relied upon in evaluating the merits of any investment. Thank you.